Khuni, The Crimes of India is a thoroughly researched podcast that uses publicly available documents, reports and books and associated media to provide listeners with a complete picture of the week's case. The following content is often graphic and regularly uncomfortable. Mentions of assault, bodily harm and death may follow. Khuni, The Crimes of India does not condone any actions mentioned in the episode. Minors are advised to exercise caution before proceeding. Thank you. I have to get out of this place. Everything about this place is horrible," she said, applying finishing touches to her makeup and adjusting her costume. "Switch off the bathroom lights. There's a goddamn blackout," someone yelled at her. "Goddamn blackout indeed. Who cares about the blackout?" India's history-altering war with Pakistan in 1971 was clearly of little concern to her. She was staring at the little note that she had been left after her performance yesterday and read it aloud to herself to convince herself that this could be real. It read, "Madam, I am Mr. J Lobo, director of the casino at Macau. I have seen and greatly admire your talent on stage. I would like to meet with you to discuss the possibility of engaging you at Macau. Thanks and regards." As she waited, Jay Lobo, the writer of this note, was ushered in. And she thought to herself, "How is he a director of a casino? He looks so young. God, I really hope this is not a hoax." Meanwhile, Lobo was going on and on about his casino. He had some good ideas, she thought. He wanted her to pioneer the fusion of Indian dances with Spanish flamenco. He said he would make her a star in Macau. <laughs> Thank you. She managed to blurt out, giddy with excitement. They were announcing her act on stage. Time to shine, she said to herself. After her performance, she stumbled into her room, tired. It was late at night, but she was she could barely contain her excitement. A Mr. Lobo wants to see you. Her assistant announced. Yes, yes, send him in. Oh my god, this was happening so fast. Mr. Lobo came inside her hotel room with another man. Hmm. Blonde hair, European, American, she wondered as she stretched out her hand to greet him. Ah, French. She realized from his accent as he greeted her back. She thought maybe they were going to finalize her offer for Macau. But she could not believe what she was hearing next oh there was an offer all right just not one for dancing though they wanted her to smuggle some jewels on a flight to tehran but why me i, I barely know you she stammered apparently her room was right above rajasthan emporium the precious jewelry store at the Ush- ashoka hotel they were going to drill a hole in the floor of her room steal the jewels and escape la passionera was struggling with the sudden demise of her hopes and dreams downcast she asked have you even seen me dance no he said through the craftiest smile she had ever seen haven't had the pleasure
नमस्ते नमस्कारम वेलकम टू पार्ट टू ऑफ चार्ल्स सोबराज स्टोरी आई एम स्नेहा सिटिंग इन हैदराबाद एंड जॉइनिंग मी ऑन स्काइप एज यूजल फ्रॉम लखनऊ इज अदिति हाई डूड हे I absolutely loved your little shorty okay it really helped me distract myself from the fact that there were two positive cases yeah they were like 500 meters from my house and guess what i am now in a containment zone how are you holding up yeah i should be given some kind of award for reading all those nauseating <laughs> letters between the two of them I'm barely holding up. I mean, staying at home sucks. News sucks. Everything <laughs> is the worst. But what wonderful weather we are having, no? I don't ever remember a time when Aprils were pleasant. Do you? Yeah, true. I mean, really it's been raining on and off and maybe it is the ap- apocalypse. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm trapped in a never-ending season of the circle. and at the risk of our audience judging me i think it's time to confess my current obsession reality shows on netflix and no <laughs> not the good ones like project runway or america's top model actually but are there any good reality shows i don't know i watched the circle love is blind circle france and most recently something called too hot to handle on netflix and let me tell you i think that is the ultimate low uh okay i'll bite what the hell is too hot to handle <laughs> okay so brace yourself they take yeah. a bunch <laughs> of the hottest fakest looking 20 somethings and from all the western countries of the world and i'm including australia okay because i don't know where to put them yeah <laughs> dump them on a beautiful island and tell them to um abstain for a month wow <laughs> it's basically <laughs> b grade porn okay and there was this one girl who had a tattoo and she didn't know what language that was in <laughs> oh oh god <laughs> see it's a great watch if you want to reduce your iq by around 20 points and you know basically what i hated the most i had to watch these dumb fucks spend a month on the beach and i don't know when i'll get to leave my bloody lane yeah <laughs> listen i guess getting quarantined <laughs> on a beach is no better than getting quarantined in your lane okay there is a limit to how much coconut you can have yeah true and also if there's anyone listening to this this episode with children around put on headphones or listen to this when there are no children around okay actually maybe i should have said this before we spoke about two how to handle <laughs> anyway let's get back to mr charles <laughs> last time we stopped he was on his way to delhi to finish a gem deal also as you've already understood from the intro to this episode by deal he always meant some kind of a shady transaction he promised shantal that he would return home with 10000 us dollars a few days later shantal's eye was caught by a newspaper headline two french men held in city delhi robbery she skimmed the rest of the story it was like something out of a super cheaply produced movie plot a blonde flamenco dancer 
apparently named Esther Markovits from Brooklyn, New York, had been held up in her room for three days, while Charles had tried to drill a hole into the floor to the jewelry shop below. The drill broke, so he persuaded the woman to entice the shop manager up to the room with his best jewels, and Charles tied him up in the room. He fled from the hotel with diamonds worth ten thousand US dollars, and subsequently he was arrested. Chantal, who was then in Bombay, took Usha and hurried to Delhi. When she reached Delhi, she found that Charles had faked that his appendix had burst, and he was let out of the jail. And he was recovering in a small hospital room under guard. What? Wait, wait, wait! How do you fake <laughs> a burst appendix? Don't they screen you for that kind of stuff? And recovering from what exactly? And how? Oh my God! Did they actually remove his appendix? <laughs> Fuck! Maybe they did. You know, <laughs> like I like I know that the appendix is like a super useless organ, but can you just remove it whenever the fuck you want? Oh my God! Imagine if this had been his excuse throughout like the million schools he went to. Miss, <laughs> miss, I want to go home. I had an ap- urgent appendix attack. Appendix attack. <laughs> I don't know. Appendicitis attack. <laughs> yeah, I think. Also, okay. here's the thing: if you want to fake an appendix attack and actually get your appendix removed, like for escaping <laughs> prison, you can only do that once. I mean, it's not you can't like it's not a great play if you want a lifelong career in crime, right? No, the thing is, he had different different plays. No, like diarrhea, stabs, food poisoning. <laughs> Poisoned the guard, so it's all very varied. Okay, like he he's a very varied man of varied talents. I think for every escape attempt, he would look at which vestigial organ he can claim to be infected, and then just escape. <laughs> yeah, or if he ran out of organs, like in Afghanistan, he would have probably poison the guard. Yeah. Oh God, horrifying. <laughs> so I had this friend in school who used to say. I have, for some weird reason, okay, to escape some stuff, he used to always be like, urgent appendicitis attack. <laughs> <laughs> if if you are Sneha's friend, uh, please let us know in the comments why you would say that exactly. We're very curious. <laughs> okay, moving on. Anyway, he escaped from his room too. He made Chantal distract the guards and slipped away. However, he was caught wandering near the Delhi railway station, and Chantal was arrested for aiding his escape. Turns out, Charles managed to charm the flamenco dancer. To her, he was this gentleman thief, leaving her money to compensate for the trouble he had caused, and apparently ordering her to take hot baths to calm her nerves. This fucking guy. <laughs> After the heist. He eluded the police and flew to Tehran. And while there, he completed some business deals. He was only apprehended on his way back home. He wanted to come home for Usha's birthday. Dad of the year, I have to say. I mean, not the best guy, but dad of the year. Okay, I'm still stuck at gentleman thief. <laughs> I think it was probably just Stockholm syndrome. I mean, all said and done, Charles was a good-looking dude. Plus, add that, add in that whole suave factor. Sort of could have been the whole package if you, you know, take out the lying, cheating, and murder. And on that note, I should add that he had a mistress in India also at this point, 
and guess what guys shantal knew oh my god yeah okay i wish we were video recording this because <laughs> the look on aditi's face <laughs> is worth a million bucks and kids all cheating is bad emotional physical or even textual sobraj borrowed money for bail from his father and soon after fled to kabul sobraj and shantal sent their daughter back to paris and moved on to afghanistan where they were soon imprisoned for car theft and not paying their hotel bill it was almost as if charles wanted to get caught so he could stage another prison break he thrived in stressful situations i must say and several times when different police forces had him within their grasp he would coolly assume the identity of another person usually one of his victims and talked his way out in kabul he drugged his prison guard and disappeared Also just to be clear he left Shantal by herself in an Afghani prison with his wife behind bars in pr- Afghanistan he returned to France and kidnapped his daughter from her maternal grandparents then he headed back to Asia with a plan to bust out Shantal instead he was arrested and imprisoned in Tehran on suspicion of selling arms to anti Shah underground This time he only escaped because he had connections in Shah's secret service the Savak. What seriously? How? <laughs> Dude, I tell you, he knew everybody. Like he knew everybody. He probably knew your parents, parents and my grandparents. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> oh god. Okay. This whole escapade proved to be the last straw for his wife. On her release in Kabul, she met an American and moved with him and her daughter to New York. Good for you Shantal. Good for you. Whoa. Concrete jungle where dreams are made of this thing you can do. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah. Sobrat spent the next 2 years on the run using as many as 10 stolen passports. He passed through various countries in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Sobraj was joined by his younger half brother Andre in Istanbul. Sobraj and Andre quickly became partners in crime, participating in various criminal activities in both Turkey and Greece. The duo were eventually arrested in Athens. After an identity switch hoax went awry, Sobraj managed to escape, but his half-brother was left behind. Andre was turned over to Turkish police by the Greek authorities and served an 18-year sentence. After escaping from Greek prison, Charles crossed over to Turkey, stole a passport in the name of Alain Jetain, a French photographer, and boarded an Air France flight to India. The world of the 60s and the 70s was a completely different place, and what a world it was. The 60s and the 70s saw the height of the American hippie movement. It was a time of free love, anti-establishment liberalism. Okay, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> Communal living, folk and psychedelic music, traveling to the east to find the meaning of life and maybe nirvana and of course LSD. Wow. <laughs> I honestly I had so much fun writing this episode mainly because I was listening to a bunch of 60s and 70s songs. In fact, I made a playlist of what I listened to uh, writing this on Spotify. I'll leave a link in the show notes if anybody wants to listen to it. Aditi quick favorite 60s artist and song first 
These boots are made for walking, Nancy Sinatra. Also, Aao Hazur Tumko from the movie Kismat, because Asha Bhosle is life. Ooh, Nancy Sinatra. I love her voice. Yeah. Also, I want to adopt that whole boho hippie clothes style with jewelry and all. Sort of like <laughs> Alexis Rose. Bought so much of that kind of jewelry when when I went to Madhya Pradesh in December. And also, did we have a boho party in college or was this something I went to after I started work? No, yeah, we had a hippie party in college. Cool, cool. Oh, cool. For a second, I thought I was hallucinating. Does reading about LSD <laughs> cause hallucinations? No, it anyway. does not. You are on <laughs> LSD. Quarantine time, madam. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's move on. Yeah. Now, hundreds of Western hippies wanting to get as far as possible away from the capitalist West sought places of love and freedom. This quest for love usually started at a European capital, most commonly London, Amsterdam, and continued all the way through Germany, Austria, Hungary, Yugoslavia, Greece, and Turkey, and from then on to the Middle East and India and Vietnam and Thailand. Ah, famous pudding shop in Istanbul. The one-stop shop for all the latest news and travel info for all travelers heading east. Nestled in the shadow of the famous Hagia Sophia, it was where all the hippies hung out, ate, played music, and even left messages to each other on the famous bulletin board. The restaurant is still there, guys, and rated 4 on TripAdvisor. Check it out after quarantine times. Ah, Of course, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 put a hard stop on the hippie trail, and things only worsened politically from there on. Did I say hard stop? Excuse my corporate (laughs) slave lingo. (laughs) But all of this gave Charles plenty of time to conduct his nefarious affairs on the hippie trail. Okay, so the last time we checked in with Charles, he was on an Air France flight to India. By now, his birth father had passed away. For reals, his half-sister Rajni had ridden to him through Felix while Charles was in jail. Hathchand had died of stroke and his ashes were scattered all over the Saigon River. In fact, when Charles had heard, he told his fellow inmates that he would finally become a rich man. This guy has his priorities completely figured out, have to say. However, as per usual, fate had other plans for Charles. Remember Chu, the nanny turned Charles's stepmother number two? Well, turns out, During Hathchan's last days, she squandered away all of his wealth so his other wife, Geeta, would not get any. By now, Charles had no family, no country, and now no money either. The Air France plane landed in Srinagar. This is where he met and seduced Marie-André Leclerc, a Canadian-French-speaking woman from Quebec, Canada. She would become his next Chantal, his romantic interest, slave, and accomplice. She had come to India with her ex-fiancé on what was supposed to be their honeymoon. (laughs) But she met Charles and fell truly, madly, deeply in love. Or at least, that's what Marie thought. For Charles, however, she was just another tool. According to Richard Neville, Charles still believed that Chantal was his true love. And he believed that he would get back with her and hold little Usha in his arms again. 
and Marie was just a pawn. Okay, fun tidbit. Marie actually saw him on the flight to Kashmir. Yep, the same one he was on while escaping from Turkey after breaking out of the Greek prison. And when they met in Kashmir, she was the one who apparently kissed him first. At least that's what Charles told Richard Neville. So as we have seen till now, Charles does nothing halfway. Charles, or rather Elaine, as known to Marie, seduced her. In fact, he even took permission from her ex-fiance to court her. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. He bought them tickets to he bought them tickets and sponsored their journey to Kathmandu and Bangkok. He was attentive, caring and romantic. Of course, she was swept off her feet. On the day of their flight back to Quebec, he confessed to Marie that his real name was Charles and he had to keep traveling for work. And due to the nature of his work, he had to keep changing his identity and he had multiple passports. He told her that the rules in Asia are different. Woman, if that isn't a red flag, I don't know what else. Like it's the reddest flag in the history of red flags. Yeah. But I guess, yeah, I guess good sex leads to bad decisions. One more lesson, kids. Actually, no kids. Kids are not listening to this episode. <laughs> Whoever is listening, don't be like Marie or Charles or Chantal or anybody we talk about today. In fact, Charles told her he had apartments all over the world and he would treat her like his queen. If I was in her place, I would have hauled ass and ran. Not a lot of smart people involved in this entire episode. Anyway, she promised to come back to Asia and live with him. Charles appealed to her sense of adventure and she could not wait to have more adventures with him. Charles said, you will come back to me and be my little queen. He said, my princess, share my house, my life. All this time she was in Canada, Charles wrote her romantic telegrams, sometimes three to four times a day, sent her gifts, called her twice a day. Nothing like this had ever happened to her. She accepted his declarations of love and proposals of marriage. She could not wait to join her beau in Asia and start a new life with him. Ugh. Okay, I still don't know if this was a love story or he had cast an imperious curse on her. Also, Aditi, <laughs> I love your whole, I'm a dumb bitch in love piling for someone, pining for someone who I don't think is a good idea for me, voice. Seriously, I loved <laughs> it in the shorty. I totally love it now. <laughs> for those people who've seen Love is Blind, I know Aditi hasn't. <laughs> Imagine Charles was a contestant there. Oh my God. God, he would have become every single woman's fiancé. Like, not even kidding. He would have sweet-talked every single woman into falling in love with him while they were still in the fucking pods. Like, before they could even see how he looked like. It would have been a <laughs> rampage in the girls' living quarters. And also, those who don't get this reference, you need to brush up on your trashy reality TV. Seriously, it's great quarantine watching. <laughs> So, in the time she wasn't around, Charles did not sit idle. He roamed around India, still drugging people and robbing their money or passports. He also evaded capture a few times. The next time Charles resurfaced, he was in Hong Kong. 
according to him and this is unverified but this has been what charles has been saying all the time he apparently worked for a drug cartel in hong kong and this cartel was trying to get rid of all amateur drug peddlers and charles was their bangkok point of contact he received periodic orders from them which he carried out that's what he claimed anyway none of this has been proven and we don't believe it and would definitely advise you all not to believe either <laughs> i mean charles was a consummate liar in hong kong he met and robbed a french geologist named denis gautier and robbed his passport and also half of his name he now called himself elaine gautier This is the name he would use for all of his time in Bangkok. This is the name Thai police would associate with close to 10 murders. For which 10 murders by the way he has not been prosecuted and will never be prosecuted again because every single warrant they had issued has expired. He then flew to Singapore and while there robbed a Cartier jewelry rep he met while he was in Hong Kong. He cleaned out his hotel room, uh, stole all his expensive suits, some jewels, and credit cards. Now, with all of this settled, he flew to what would be his area of operation for the next couple of years, Bangkok. Once there, he called Marie and told her to fly to Bangkok. Marie was over the fucking moon. She sold her car and hopped on the next flight to Bangkok. Later, as she wrote in a letter to her friend. Oh, I feel disgusted reading this, but I have to read this. <laughs> like a bride, nervous but happy at the thought of being taken by the man she loves. Oh, I need a cleanse. Oh. No, Marie, Marie, what is this behavior? <laughs> <laughs> Now, Marie landed in Bangkok forty-eight hours later, and Charles came to pick her up. He told her. that a limousine was waiting outside once in the limousine he gave her some beautiful jade jewelry and a ring but marie told him that she wanted to wait for a bit and see how they would actually work out as a couple charles was put off by this trait of independence in women he liked his women docile and pliant while in the car he told marie that he had a couple of illegal businesses in thailand and that it would be safer for him to introduce her as a secretary at first and also going forward her name would be monique at this time marie was confused she couldn't figure out why charles was being cold and distant to her a far cry from the man who romanced her with flowers letters and long 20 minute calls to canada every other day turns out charles already had a girl in thailand he oh. felt <laughs> he felt it's always better to have a local girl better for business purposes apparently pragmatic i mean i don't know what else to say that's pragmatic. if i were a if i were a, a career criminal that that's what i would do have a local guy everywhere impressive meanwhile mari could still not understand why charles was being distant to her and there was no physical intimacy in their relationship she spent her time alone in their hotel while charles was out making business deals in actuality charles was trying to break her he wanted her as pliant and as submissive as his asian girl his words not ours in all this time marie's visa expired and charles spent all her money 
So now she was an illegal alien in Thailand without any cash or a return ticket. And Charles finally had full control over her. And even now, Marie could not understand why Charles was not making love to her. Look, initially, when I read the Richard Neville book, I thought this whole withholding sex thing was a case of men writing women. But no, there are multiple accounts. And these include other journalists who've interviewed Charles and other people from Marie's family that confirm that he used this as a way to control women. Of course, I dug further into this. And turns out Charles wasn't the first one or the last one to do this. In the Kama Sutra, this behavior is suggested as a way of keeping the partner's interest. Okay. And also as a means to coerce a partner into performing or not performing a certain kind of behavior. Wow. And in other more recent news, according to some shitty tabloids, because I couldn't stop reading once I started, (laughs) one of the Kardashian sisters apparently used this on one of the One Direction boys she dated. I think it was the pretty Kardashian. I don't remember the name. Hey, all Kardashians are pretty, okay? It is official policy of this podcast to never hate on the Kardashians. (laughs) And also, I think I may be a little bit rusty on my family law, but I think withholding sex is valid ground for divorce, at least on the Hindu Marriage Act. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Yeah, there you go. A little legal tidbit, courtesy from us at Khuni the Podcast. Moving on. One day, Charles took Marie to a sort of a vacation around Thailand. While in Pattaya, they met an Australian couple who joined them on a short trip to Huahin. This is another seaside resort in Thailand and is totally on my list. Now, these two posed as a French couple, Monique and Jean Belmont. Wow, what a posh sounding name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they drugged and robbed the Australian couple. Russell Lapton and his wife, Vera. Clearly, rather than a quick hit, like a Robin run, Charles preferred to ingratiate himself into the life of his victims for a time, as though the sense of power and control over them was as much a reward as the money and property he would ultimately relieve them of. Charles and Murray then came back to Bangkok and signed the lease on apartment number 504 in Kanith House. Ah, Kanith House. I've put up a picture. Look at the shady apartment. <laughs> Lot of <laughs> shit happens here. <laughs> Just like another Charles who operated around roughly the same time, but all the way in California, Sobraj began to assemble a family of sorts. Taking in a string of young travelers, drifters, and confused souls into his apartment. Kanath House was close to the tourist section of Bangkok and near the bars of Patpong and most of the big hotels and shopping arcades. Over the next few months, Charles, or Elaine, as everybody would come to know him, would go on to lease a few more apartments in that building to accommodate his growing group of quote unquote friends. Apart from people, Charles also had a gibbon monkey named Coco and a tiny dog named Frankie. For the time being, Marie was happy with her life. Yeah, I'm getting very strong Charles Manson vibes from this guy. Yeah. Now, Marie was not to have Charles for herself for too long. Two weeks after they moved into the flat, they drove 800 kilometers northeast from Bangkok to Chiang Mai, taking with them a middle-aged Frenchman. His name was Andre Brunio. 
and Charles had been told that this man would be flying in from Paris to Bangkok via Hong Kong in early September and checking into the Royal Hotel in Bangkok. Apparently, he was the first name on the list given to him by his Hong Kong employers. Charles drugged him, left him in the hotel room and began the long drive back to Bangkok. On the way back, Charles picked up a young French accountant named Dominique Renelou. And for the most part of the journey back, the Frenchman was unconscious. He would start living with them in Kanith House and would remain on treatment for diarrhea for the next few months. Charles would use his passport, which he had taken for quote-unquote safekeeping from Dominique many, many times. How the fuck is he forging passports so efficiently? I mean, this dude is on the run. This is before the era of Photoshop. Okay, if any of our listeners have any insights on passports and how they are forged, please DM us. Only for academic reasons. We don't want to... This is not for practical purposes. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you how we should do it. Uh, back then, they were all written passports, right? And with the photo was uh, yeah. basically stuck onto the thing. So he used to let the writing be. Okay. And um, he always had a passport size photos of himself everywhere. Like all the time. He had this mm-hmm. kit of passports forgery. So he should just randomly take it okay. out and unstick that and stick his photo in or whoever he wants to forge. <laughs> yeah, dude. Okay. No wonder they had to get those, the new barcode passports. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. See, people are still forging those also, but whatever. It wouldn't have been this easy. <laughs> now, Charles would later say that one of the reasons he had taken Dominique back to Kanith House was as an alibi for the job he now planned. After tucking his house guest into bed with another sleeping drought disguised as diarrhea medicine and leaving him in Marie's care, Charles caught the afternoon flight back to Chiang Mai, where a Thai friend met him at the airport and drove him to the Chiang Inn, where resting in his room was Andre Brignot. Remember? The dude he had left drugged and then came back to Bangkok. Now, when Charles recalled the incident while talking to Richard Neville, he laughed about something the man said to him as soon as he entered room number 207. Dude, wasn't that your room number in college? Oh, I hate it, but yes. Anyway, apparently, Bruno had said, Who are you? I thought you were my friend. Well, Charles had heard that line before. In fact, multiple times. It was his MO to use friendship as a weapon to break and enter into his victim's life. Intimacy? and pills. Laxatives first to <laughs> induce illness so he could diagnose their complaints and offer helpful advice. Later, when their trust had been won and defences disarmed, he would move in with heavier weapons like other drugs like larjactyl, quaaludes, mogadons and other assorted soporifics. Charles interrogated Andre about his heroin business. After more torture, Andre gave him the names of his heroin couriers who were due to arrive in Thailand. And after getting the details, Charles gave him some more drugs, took his body into the bathroom and held Andre's head underwater until he was dead. Charles would later call this operation, quote-unquote, a cleaning and boast about it. According to him, it was the perfect murder. And which, by the way, is still listed as an accident. And among the names 
Andre had given him was Vitali Hakim, a Turk from Ibiza known to his friends as Ved. At this point, there are some unconfirmed reports that he had killed earlier when he was on the run back in the Middle East. But we know for sure that his killing spree began once he moved into Kanit house and started trying to build his cult. He gathered followers by gaining their loyalty. A typical scam was to help his targets out of some difficult situation. In one case, he helped two former French policemen, Yannick and Jacques, recover their missing passports that Sobraj himself had actually stolen. They, along with Dominique, would continue to live in Kanit house and bear witness to everything that happened there. They literally had no option. Charles had all their passports, quote, locked away for safety, unquote. Then one day, all of a sudden, a guy called Ajay Chaudhary appeared. He just turned up at the door one day, smiling a lot with his fine white teeth flashing in a handsome brown face. Charles later claimed that he met him at a park and sent him to live at Kanet house. He was slightly built, wore dark trousers, a white shirt and a thin moustache which added to the impression of personal neatness. The Indian thought himself to be, in his own words, hip and addressed Dominique as, quote, man, using English with an Indian accent, which Dominique could barely <laughs> understand. <laughs> Ajay would turn out to be Charles's accomplice in almost all his murders in Thailand. And apparently, Dominique found this, quote, friendship very, very strange because he had heard Charles bitch and moan about how he hated Indians. So Charles's first known victim was a young American girl named Teresa Knowlton from San Pedro, California. She wore white cotton blouses and long skirts with Indian prints on them. She drove a red Volkswagen Bug. She was a quintessential flower child. She had travelled east to study meditation and the Buddhist lifestyle. She was on her way to a monastery in Nepal but took a detour through Thailand. This obviously proved to be a bad decision. In fact, it was Ajay who got her to Kanit house and she became friends with everyone and even spent a few days at this flat during October 1975. In fact, even Marie, who used to spend her time around the flat sulking, laughed at Teresa's stories of her risque sex life back in California. Charles claimed that Knowlton was a drug courier although there was never any evidence to suggest this. And again, no one can really point out why he killed her. Herman Nippenberg, a Dutch diplomat involved in later investigations, and we'll talk about Nippenberg later, believed that it was because the girl refused to become a permanent part of Charles's entourage and work for him as a drug and gem smuggler. Knowlton was found dead in the water off the Gulf of Thailand clad only in a cheap floral bikini. It was initially believed that she had drowned after a night of too much alcohol and hash, but an autopsy report revealed months later that she had forcibly had her head held under water until she died. Vitali Hakim, who was a small-time drug dealer from Ibiza who had travelled east looking for a meaningful and fresh start in life, but he ended up getting attracted into Charles's spider web. Charles, while talking about Wade, said that he was, 
quote, a hard man, a strong man, a real Turk. After spending several days at Kanit house, mostly partying and getting wasted, Vitali accompanied Ajay and Charles on a trip to a nearby resort town of Pattaya, but failed to return with them. The other guests at the house thought that they went to gem mines, but most of them thought that it was kind of weird because they left at 11 p.m. in the night. Charles very smoothly explained away his absence by saying that Hakim had decided to stay with his friends that he had run into at Pattaya, something which also seemed a bit strange to Jacques and Yannick as they knew that Vitali had given over his passport and traveler's checks to Charles for safekeeping. Wow. Seems like his life lessons that he learned in that first-class dining room in the ship to Djibouti didn't go to waste. No, and it seems these people are so dense. Like, they can all see the red flags, but they're not, they're not doing anything about it. No, the thing is, he ran a tight ship in that house, okay? Like, they were all scared of him, okay. and what could they do without their passports? I mean, and yeah. Right, right. A few days later, the badly burnt body of Vitali Hakim was discovered on the road to Pattaya. Charles later claimed that he killed Vitali Hakim because, and I quote, I wanted his murder to be a message, a message to others in the business. The body showed signs of being badly beaten and the autopsy report indicated that the man had still been alive when he was doused with petrol and set on fire. At the time, no connection had been made to the death of Teresa Knowlton and the Thai police deduced that the unfortunate man had been ambushed, robbed and murdered by Thai bandits. Okay, this Thai police is super idiotic, okay? Like, really, they don't do their job ever. See, look, this, at least this connection is a little difficult to form, but later on we'll see more in this episode as to how, like, why... I think they were super incompetent. And it's almost as if they see only what they want to see. A note which Hakim had left for his girlfriend, Charmaine Karu, back in Ibiza, led the French girl into a death trap when she showed up at Kanith house in December and began to ask too many questions. In almost identical circumstances to that of Knowlton, the body of Karu would eventually be found floating in the sea. Once again, at an autopsy performed months later, it was revealed that she had not drowned, but had been strangled with such force that it had shattered the bones in her neck. So while Charles had not been suspected of murder, the trail of robberies and frauds which he left across Thailand had certainly come to the attention of both the local authorities and Interpol, who had dubbed him the Serpent due in part to his ability to slither away out of any situation. As his self-belief soared even higher, Charles Sobraja's crimes became not only increasingly audacious, but even more brutal. N.K. Britannia and his fiancée Cornelia Emker were two Dutch students making their way across Southeast Asia. Cornelia, or Cocky as she was known, was a tall, quiet, 24-year-old girl with blue eyes and flowing fair hair. She had worked as a secretary while saving for her trip of a lifetime. Her boyfriend of five years, Henke Bitania, who had inherited his swarthy skin and dark hair from his Indonesian father and from his Dutch mother, 
bright blue eyes. Cocky and NK first met Charles Sobraj in Hotel Malaysia and he told the couple that he was a gems dealer, eventually selling Cornelia, an obviously stolen sapphire ring, for a bargain price of 1600 US dollars. Charles invited them to stay with him in Kanet House. He promised them French food. And although the pair no doubt found the apartment at Kanet House to be not quite the quote luxurious villa that their new friend had posted about, but the financially restricted couple were happy for the free accommodation and thankful when the gracious host offered to take care of them when they mysteriously fell sick soon after their arrival even locking up their passport and valuables in his safe for protection you know the absolute worst part like the absolute heart wrenching part of all of this ordeal bintania kind of suspected charles was up to no good all along in fact he wrote as much in his journal so bintania writes I was already wondering last night if our French friend was not a swindler who was adeptly cheating us by asking a high price as we didn't know anything about precious stones. That's why we looked at the shop windows of many jewelers who were nearby and there are dozens of shops in the neighborhood. I find out that we bought the ring for roughly half the price they ask in the shops. On the night of December 16th, Charmaine Karu suddenly turned up at Kanith house looking for Vitali Hakim. Charles and Ajay hurriedly hustled NK and Cornelia out of the apartment telling the others that they were taking him to a hospital despite the fact that they were still quite ill and it was almost midnight and later returned by themselves covered in mud and smelling of gasoline here's what Charles did with them in his own words as he told Richard Neville by the time we took them from the house they were down although they could just about walk i said to the guy in the morning that they were sick and i'd take them to the hospital so in the car they were convinced that that's where they were going ha i convinced in their dream in the car cocky's head lay on ajay's shoulder come on it'll soon be over charles said to her gently where are we going she asked hardly managing to form the words you are both very sick Cocky we have to take you to the hospital Cocky was sleeping deeply with her head on her boyfriend's shoulder the back doors were opened and Ajay and Charles dragged the couple out of the car what's this NK asked where are we as Charles would re- later recall it when the dutch guy started resisting i hit him in the stomach and he fell down he was stocky and he started to move So Ajay kicked him in the stomach and then choked him but he began to move again he was strong even under drugs it had been raining heavily Charles and Ajay dragged Bitania over to a puddle of water and held his head under it the girl never really knew what was going on Ajay bashed her over the head i think on the side of the road we splashed them with petrol When Charles offered no explanation of what had happened to the Dutch couple, Dominique Renelio, along with Yannick and Jacques, began to grow suspicious of his activities. A feeling of dread heightened when the Bangkok newspapers began to run stories of the discovery of the two unidentified bodies believed to be tourists who had been strangled and set ablaze 
presumably by bandits now meanwhile using inke bintanya's passport charles traveled to nepal and a few days before christmas 1975 became friends with a pair of westerners in kathmandu canadian laurent ormond carrier met connie jo bronzich another californian girl backpacking her way through asia and looking for the meaning of life in nepal and quickly became close in fact they became so close that a couple of aussies who were connie's friends uh at the same time were very surprised at that pair as laurent was a seasoned mountaineer and connie would only trek as far as her nearest morphine hit now laurent was waiting for the weather to clear up enough for him to attempt a climb of mount everest during that time connie and laurent spent a lot of their time in the cd section of kathmandu dubbed freak street where drugs and stolen goods were rampant freak street was a hippie nirvana since marijuana and hashish were legal and sold openly in government licensed stop shops oh sort of like pushkar remember where we had <laughs> special juice we did <laughs> i don't know i'm not admitting anything on this podcast look it's government sanctioned okay so we can admit whatever the fuck we want <laughs> anyway now sobraj probably met laurent and connie jo posing as a gem dealer and it wasn't long after his arrival in kathmandu that the body of an unidentified westerner was found lying in a field burned and slashed with a knife a second body positively identified as bronzich was found nearby with multiple stab wounds to the chest connie's australian friends identified her body and reading their account of how they identified her body and how they were feeling is just like heartbreaking now police suspicions for the murder of connie jo initially fell on laura ormond carrier after the nepalese customs reported that he had left the country not long after the girl's body had been discovered now this was another reason why they failed to identify the body that was found along with khani of course it had been charles all along who fled with who fled nepal using laurent's passport stopping briefly in bangkok he sold some jewels he had stolen from bronzich then returned to kathmandu the next day using bintanya's passport When Charles Murray and Ajay were eventually questioned by the police who had pieced together the final days of Bronzich and Carrier they managed to bluff their ignorance although Charles was more concerned with what he had discovered while he had briefly returned to Bangkok Dominique Yanik and Jacques after putting everything together slowly realized that they were living in the care of a murderer <gasps> finally A search of <laughs> Charles's office uncovered dozens of stolen passports, identity papers, and most importantly, many, many personal belongings of Teresa, Ved, Enke, and Kaki. While Charles was still in Nepal, they fled his apartment, tipped the police off with what was going on inside Kanath House before heading home to Paris. Once in Paris, they tried to contact the local authorities about what was happening to the citizens of various countries in Bangkok. but the french police said they couldn't do anything at this point but they did pass on this information to the interpol now despite having no money and being wanted by the nepalese police and uncertain of what may be lying back in bangkok charles still felt invincible guess your childhood experiences and lessons remain with you till you die 
because clearly even now <laughs> he maintains he did not kill one single person Charles returned to Bangkok in 1976 and immediately stole a passport and some money from an American man after drugging him This guy is probably the luckiest son of a bitch on this planet because Charles was briefly questioned by the Thai police who were investigating the bikini murders as the local media was dubbing them and following up on the information given to them by Dominique Renello and company While Thai police did not treat the matter as overly serious Herman Kippenberg at the Dutch embassy was convinced that Charles Sobraj or Alain Gautier the pseudonym that Renelu had known him as was the man responsible for the brutal murders of the two Dutch tourists and was determined to see justice be served Herman Nippenberg deserves a special mention here remember NK and his girlfriend Cocky the Thai police initially thought that they were two Australians yeah that happened it was Nippenberg who combed through the reports bribed someone and then realized that the top Cornelia was wearing was one of those souvenir shirts from Holland. And the acrylic was not burnt in the fire. And further investigation of the body also revealed that the label on her bra also said made in Holland. After this, Nippenberg contacted Nadine Gyers, resident of 307A Kanath House, who lived there with her husband, Remy Gyers. Now Remy was a busy chef and Nadine used to generally hang out with the residents of the many flats Charles had leased by then. Based on the tips given to Nippenberg by Dominique, Yannick, Nadine and Jacques, Nippenberg orchestrated a brilliant coup to arrest Charles in Kanath House during this time. In fact, it was Dominique who saw the picture of the burnt body in the newspaper and realized that the shirt was Cocky's. However, due to the sheer incompetence and corruption in the Thai police, Charles managed to once again slip away. On the night of the coup, 10 policemen burst through the door of the flat 504, pushing Ajay aside and brandishing machine guns. Charles was at his desk sorting through gems. "Where is Elaine Gautier?" demanded the officer leading the raid. "He's in Hong Kong on business," Charles said. getting up from his desk and greeting them all with a polite smile as though this was a fresh party of customers who are you police narcotics and you charles told them that he was david allen gore and showed them a us passport in that name which he had on which he had his own picture it was the one he had stolen in hong kong 6 weeks ago from an american school teacher i'm from puerto rico a college professor he was saying to the colonel as the men branched off into other rooms but now i deal in gems it makes more money this was thailand in 1976 where anything could be bought for the right price charles greased the palm of a thai police official to the tune of 18000 us dollars to have him look the other way while he fled the country with marie and ajay stopping briefly in malaysia Charles had Ajay procure 40,000 US dollars in gems from the mining towns which he planned to sell once they arrived in Geneva. When Charles arrived at the airport to catch his flight to Geneva, Marie was surprised to see that Ajay was not accompanying them. She inquired about him 
but the unnerving glare in Charles's eyes told her that she was better off not knowing. Ajay Chaudhary had seemingly outlived his usefulness to Charles Sobraj, and the popular theory is that his still undiscovered remains lay buried somewhere deep in the Malaysian jungle. Police are still investigating. Okay, wow. I think we can end this episode here, don't you think? Yeah. While Charles and Marie are on a flight to Geneva, whoa, this was again like a super heavy, heavy episode. Dude, smuggling, passport, forgery, drugging people, wanting to start a cult, is there nothing this guy did not do? Seriously. Yeah, man. His brain is like most serial killers' brains we've come across. Kind of fascinating. I really think he could have become a great criminal lawyer, but then again, you go one way or you go the other. On yeah. that note, <laughs> on that note, tune in next week for the exciting conclusion of Charles Sobraj's story. And trust us, it only gets juicier. And yup, this man was in news as recently as 28th March 2020. Really, crime doesn't sleep. <laughs> okay, that's it for today, folks. Let us know what you think about Charles or about our podcast in general. Give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to us. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you're updated every time we upload a new episode. Follow us on our socials and drop us a line or two wherever you want. It's always nice to hear from people. And yeah, this episode was late, but we will be back on time going forward from now. Uh, please tell fellow crime buffs about us. We'd be so grateful if you can sp- spread the word. Have a great week and stay safe. Bye.